Today we study Paul's letter to Ephesians for six weeks. And we are about halfway of our four sermon series as we come to the end of chapter 3. Again, today's passage is another important text, especially because it concludes Paul's doctrinal section. Paul's letter always has two parts. One is a theological, more like a theoretical or doctrinal, and the other one is ethical, devotional, or practical. Paul is a well-balanced person between you know, theory and practice, or theology and ethics. And today's text connected these two parts. Guess how you connect the theology with the ethics? Or, commonly speaking, how do we walk the talk that we do? How do we walk that, uh, you know, what we talk? How do we practice what we preached? That is through prayer. Prayer for us is a hinge, hinge that opens a door, connects us from one area, especially our conviction to our conduct. Uh, my uh, Princeton prof professor, Diogenes Allen, wrote an interesting book called The Spiritual Theology. It's a very brief book, and uh, it's an actually well-written book. And the whole idea of the book is doctrine apart from the life of a prayer is abstract and thorough. You know, ethics, theology, without prayer is not real theology. And the theology, if you really understand theology, will make you pray, as we will see today. And also ethics, apart from the life of prayer, is also hollow and noisy and create nothing but a busy body. So truly, prayer makes a theology healthy by keeping its focus on God and his grace. And theology without prayer is a very unhealthy, wandering in the wilderness of a man-made speculation. So this is why I love Apostle Paul and his theology. Because of Paul's you know, writings and theology is uh, permeated with, with, with the prayer. To Paul, prayer is a natural like a breathing. He prayed everywhere. If you really know, read the Paul story in the New Testament. He prayed in the riverside. He prayed in the, you know, with the people. He prayed even in the prison. He prayed even right after the fresh you know, torture. You remember the Paul's prayer at the Philippian jail? For Paul, confession and conduct are the two sides of the same coin joined by prayer. So today's text is about Paul's prayer. And this is the second time Paul is talking about prayer. And Han preached a solid message about prayer in chapter 1. And I'm tempted to quiz you, but I don't I want to save your face, so I, I, I will not. But what do you remember that Paul's prayer in chapter 1? That Paul prayed out of God's abundant love rather than our abject need. His prayer was driven by God's promise of abundant love, not by problems of our abject needs or struggles. Paul was a prayer warrior, and his prayer was a prevailing prayer. So that's why I titled today's message, Prevailing Prayer. Because even though Paul was uh, incarcerated, his prayer was mighty, so much so that 
he encouraged people outside about freedom. So who is, who is enjoying life more? Who is experiencing power more? Paul has a prevailing prayer. And uh, I want us to have a, not just to practice a prayer in our Christian life, but we experience and constantly practice prevailing prayer. You know, F.B. Meyer, a well-known British pastor, once said, the greatest tragedy of a life, Christian life, is not an not unanswered prayer, but an unoffered prayer. Greatest tragedy of a Christian life is not an unanswered prayer, but an unoffered prayer. And uh, today, through the Paul's uh, second uh, teaching about prayer, I want to share with you the three principles of a prevailing prayer that will really empower your prayer life. Because truly, truly, without prayer, we can do nothing. The ministry is not a you know, religious game. You know, house church special we committed to, is, it falls apart without prayer. Family, children, marriage falls apart if we don't pray sincerely and prevailingly. Now, so let's read a passage. The Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 to 21. I want to I divide, uh, let's read a singles versus married. So singles include all the youth. So will married read yeah, married will read first and singles you follow, okay? So married, verse 14, here we go, one, two, three. For this reason I kneel before the Father. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with the power through his spirit in your inner being. may have the power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, Today, I want to talk about three things about uh, prevailing prayer. Posture, purpose, and power. So it's easy, three P. Posture, purpose, and prayer. I mean power, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm already forgetting my own outline. <laughs> the first principle of prayer is a posture of a prayer. What was a Paul's posture of a prayer according to verse 14? For this reason, I, what? Kneel before the Father. You might underline the word kneel. First off, Jewish people's usual posture of a prayer is not kneeling, but standing, standing. So for instance, if you look at the Jesus parable of the Pharisees and tax collector in the Luke chapter 18, Jesus said, Pharisee stood by himself and prayed to God that, God, I thank, I thank you that I'm not like all these bad people. And also, but the tax collector stood at a distance, he could not even look up. So Jewish people, their usual posture of a prayer is a standing. So even today, when you visit Jerusalem and see the Orthodox Jews praying, 
uh, at the western wall, the only remaining structure of uh, Jerusalem temple, you will find them all standing in, in you know, praying in standing position. Kneeling in prayer is actually very unusual in the New Testament that uh, this term, the kneel, appear only a few times in the Bible and the only time in Paul's uh, writing. I mean, Paul's you know, own, own prayer life. And the, the other time that somebody knelt, uh, kneeling, actually kneeling was, I want to preach on this, but I'll give you, was that the, uh, the, the mother of Zebedee's son came to Jesus with her son, and then kneeling down, she asked him a favor. That's uh, like a preview of a next year's sermon. That, uh, you know, the good mother with a bad intention. That's a kind of a working title. Okay. Now, what made a Paul now kneel before God? Before I answer that question, let me ask you a question. When they usually kneel before God in prayer? Yes. Thank you, JJ. Just, you know, at least I and most people, I assume, when we are desperate, when we have an urgent need or some kind of crisis, that's when we automatically kneel. Guess why today Paul is kneeling before God? It's not because of some kind of a horrible situation, but because of the greatest honor that he discovered in Christ. So to understand today's text, you have to actually go back to previous passage so, if, so Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, look at this. For this reason I kneel before the Father, right? And uh, uh, for this reason I, I kneel before the, uh, for this reason, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. And uh, if you look at your Bible, I'm sorry, isn't there kind of a, there is a line there, right? You know what I'm talking about? It actually, and then you look at the today's passage, verse 14. For this reason, I'll kneel before the Father. So for this reason, repeat it, verse 1 and verse 14, right? Guess what happened to between the verse 1 and 14? Paul digressed. You know, Paul was dictating his, uh, uh, his uh, letter. Paul didn't write the letter. Somebody else was. It's a common practice. You dictate and your secretary write the letter. So this, so Paul was actually going to say, for this reason I kneel before the Father and pray, but all of a sudden, verse 2 to you know, 13, it was, uh, as a commentator said, was a digression. Paul was interrupted by digression. And the, what, was a, what sort of a digressed Paul before he talked about the prayer? And actually, once again, the text says, you know, some of your Bible uh, text translation, for this reason I kneel before the Father, and there is a line, right? And then the whole thing comes, whole thing comes, sort of showing is this is kind of, at, well, anyway, it's a disruption. Now, what is the main thing in the, uh, this digression in verse, you know, uh, verse, two to four, uh, verse 2 to 13? The key word, in this major you know, section of a digression, is a word called the mystery. So if you look at the verse 3, 4, 6, and 9, four times, Paul repeats the word mystery. Look at this. 
the mystery made known to me by revelation. As I have already written briefly. He actually talked about in chapter 1, verse 9. And then verse 4, once again, in reading this, you will be able to understand my insight into what? Mystery of Christ. And then verse 6, this mystery, that is through the gospel, Gentiles are heir together with Israel, members together with the one bodies, sharers together in the promise of Christ. And then again, verse 9, to make a plain, everyone, the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all, but now is made known to even someone like me. Mystery, 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 mystery. Paul talks about mystery four times. And this word mystery is a loaded term. It's not a, you know, uh, in Greek word is a mysterion. It's not like a small secret that, you know, last week I received an email from Evite how to organize a, what is that, mystery dinner invite? You know, we are not talking about those, who is my, you know, uh, secret Valentine kind of, uh, you know, very, you know, small, ordinary kind of mystery or secret. Back then, when people talk about mysterion, they are talking about the top secret of all top secret. Later, Greek, you know, philosophers or religious people called it the gnosis. Gnosis means the knowledge, out of which we got the Gnostics. But anyway, this is the highest secret above all top secrets in the world. And at that time, Persian religion, called Mithraicism, was based on this idea of a mystery. They claimed they have a mystery or the knowledge about salvation, the most information of all information. And this information will transform you. And they say only a few people are invited to know this mysterion uh, uh, or gnosis, this mystery. And that's where you remember that I mentioned about all the you know, initiation of a Greek clubs. It all started from Mithraicism. Now, Paul was proclaiming the most sought after information, the most, info, most important truth of all truths he discovered in Christ. Not by own wisdom, by grace of God. And that is what? In Christ, God made us one new humanity. God is saving everybody and uniting everybody as a family of God. So today's you know, passage, Paul prayed like this. I kneel before the Father from whom every family in this world received the name, right? He's kind of playing the pun with the word. Father in Greek is a pater. And, uh, and the uh, uh, family is a patria. It's a very male chauvinistic world, whereas a family comes from father, you know. Actually, family comes from mothers, not from fathers. We, we, you know, we, we don't produce any family. You know, it's a mothers, actually. They are the, you know, they are the, you know, they are the produce, they are, you know. Family comes from mother, biologically. But back then, they say it's from father. So, so you know, pater and patria. Now, Paul is saying this. He found out 
God is Father of all people. Because in Christ, God invites everybody to come to know his heart. And through Christ, we all become not only children of God, brothers and sisters of God's family. You know, last week, Han gave a very, very good theological term. That in Christ, we are united with God and with each other. What's that word? You slippers. What's the important theological word? Okay, two words. Second word, union. First word, double union. <laughs> I guess. All right, it's a double union. It is an important word, brothers and sisters. Oh my goodness, okay. Paul is basically saying this. I know the end of the God's purpose for history. I know the end of everything that God planned. That is a creator, one new humanity in Christ. And truly in God, we can transcend, transcend all man-made divisions and differences and discrimination and belittling. And we can really, really love each other. That's what Paul is saying. You know, I don't know how you feel about the end of his story, but uh, about uh, uh, 30 years ago, exactly 30 years ago, there was a book, say, uh, uh, there was somebody, uh, a guy named Francis Fukuyama. He is a Cornell grad and a Harvard PhD. And he wrote a little essay called The End of His Story, question mark. And it was a sensational essay that he wrote a book, and the book was The End of His Story and the Last Man. And it was a New York, uh, New York Times bestseller. And, uh, he was the, uh, uh, in every political event and important thing, he was a guest for next, you know, 15 years. And then uh, now you don't see him anymore, and this is why. But he said this. Following the ascendancy of a Western-style liberal democracy, following the Cold War and the collapse of a Soviet Union that happened in 1989, fall of a Berlin Wall, Humanity was reaching not just the passing of a particular period of a post-war history, but the end of history as such. That is the end point of a mankind's ideological evolution and universalization of a Western liberal democracy as a final form of a human government. You know what is he saying? We reached the end politically. Democracy won. Communism failed. Yay! Now, back to the earth. What happened now? Is that the dictator? We, uh, do we see democracy flourishing everywhere? How about our own country? Uh, uh, is our democratic tradition stronger than 30 years ago? We are regressing. We are back to the chaos. We are talking about you know, impeaching of our own president. Paul was driven to his knee because of great honor God bestowed upon him. You know, you and, you and I, we don't, have a, we don't have to have a PhD in political science and the world, you know, political history. In Christ, we already know what is the end point of a human community. That is, in Christ, we love one another. So that's why when Paul was talking about praying to God, after he's thinking about reflecting on what God has done in Christ for us, he was 
so blessed. They heal knelt before God with the honor. What knelt him down was not a pressure. It was an honor. Amen? So when you pray to God, first thing I hope all of us have is that uh, I am the luckiest person in this world. What I found in Christ is better than the billion dollar, you know, lottery ticket. Better than any top college education, you know, admission or whatever, graduate school or degree or, you know, even marrying the best person in the world. This is the greatest, you know, deal. Start your prayer with the imagination that when you come to God, you God bestowed on you that honor of a complete access to the most powerful person in the universe. For that, I prepared this, you know, a picture, well-known picture of a JFK uh, and with his son. This picture was taken in 1963, and the, you know, the JFK Jr. playing around in the Oval Office, and uh, this is a, a, a political PR success. That people are showing that oh, even though he's a president of the most powerful nation in the world, and he takes his job seriously, but look at this, you know, he's a father. It's like, a, you know, it's like a almost image of God, you know. Almighty, but all tender, caring, loving. He didn't lose, you know, his side of his son, kind of thing. But JFK, is he a really good father? He's a plundering, he's a real peace. Let me put that way. He is not an exemplary father or even husband, right? I mean, you fail to be a real loving husband. Sorry. You're doing a really failing parenting, too. Oh, feel, feel too right here. <laughs> OK. So before, <laughs> I, feel I, better, I better you know, move on. Who am I talking about JFK? Jamie is about to stand and say, <laughs> so I better stop here. But, Point that I'm trying to is that uh, look at the innocent, you know, JFK's junior's face. He doesn't know it's a political, you know, a PR stunt. He's uh, happy to be near his father. You know, our Heavenly Father is not JFK. He's more powerful than JFK. And then when he comes to him, when we utter the word, Heavenly Father, you know what happened? The creator and the maker of the universe turn his eyes, to, you know, ears to you, and he look at you. How can you not pray without a sense of honor and joy and gratitude? Back in California, I had a church member. He was a so-called, he's a Republican Party member. He called the so-called Eagle member of the Republican Party in California. And he had a, uh, he, he has a business which is heavily depends on the uh, government contract. So he, uh, he uh, paint and repair, maintain the Navy ship. So it's a very huge business. So when, when I went to his, uh, his house for dinner, in the dining, dining table, there was a lot of, I mean, in his house, there are so many pictures. And then there are pictures with the president. You know, President Ford, Reagan, you name it. All the president's picture and him shaking hands and the prefix picture. I thought, wow. I, and then he told me, 
Hey, Pastor Paul, that each picture cost me $100,000 <laughs> to be, to take a picture with the president. We're talking about 30 years ago. It cost me $100,000. To be an eagle member of a Republican Party cost him $100,000. And he needed that so that he would get the government contract, right? And uh, one year, even in the Clinton era, one day he came in the Pastor Paul. You know, uh, even though I'm a Republican, but we all have whatever, you know, that uh, share. And so I can appoint uh, one person to be an intern at the White House. This is uh, right after President Clinton was impeached. I mean, you know, failed, you know, impeached and then he, he stayed in the power. You know, he fooled around with the interns. And so this person said, I, I can recommend uh, some Stanford student, one Stanford student's internship. So if, you know, let me know any students of our church. I'm not a fan of, uh, you know, uh, Clinton, but uh, I just emailed to our, you know, college students. Anyone interested in the White House summer internship, let me know. You know what? Next week, I received uh, more emails from unknown people, people <laughs> who claim to know me. Oh, I met you at the Trusted Student Union. I don't you know. We, and then so many people I didn't know want to be summer intern at White House. And with the president is known to fooling around with the interns. Man, when it comes to access to powerful people, we know it's a great honor. But you know what Bible said? God gave this incredible honor to everybody. Jesus said, I'm in you, you in me. Ask anything, it will be done. Look up. John chapter 15. Jeremiah 33, 3. Jeremiah said, ask, and I will answer you. I will show you the unsearchable things. God gives us his attention. Prayer is not religious in a ritual. It's real. Do you think I'm a Christian because somehow this pays well and this job, I mean, you know, being a pastor will send me in the whatever, you know, great lifestyle? It's because of prayer. Nothing but a prayer is real. All right. My main point is not here, so let me move on. Now, second uh, principle of a prevailing prayer is a purpose of a prayer. Prevailing prayer is not just praying a lot to God, but prayer with a purpose and focus. So for that, look at the verse 16. Paul said, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with the power through his spirit in your inner being. Where does Paul say God to empower him? Where? Where did Paul ask? God to empower him. Where? Hello? Say it loud, somebody. Inner being. Inner being. Inner being. Later in the verse 20 in doxology, Paul repeats the same thing. To him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work, where? Within us. Within us. You might underline both. Inner being and with. You know, God's primary concern through our prayer or to our prayer, is transform us. Our inner being, more than our circumstance. God is more interested in my character than my circumstances. God wants to strengthen me to withstand and overcome any circumstance. 
God's help is not a temporary, circumstantial, conditional. God's help is a permanent. It's a God's help is a something that, that gives me power within. Let me illustrate this. When you go to the bottom of a deep sea, you have to, there, you know, there's two ways to actually handle the pressure. When, do you know what this is? This is a special submarine that is uh, made to explore the bottom of the deep ocean. Hard to pronounce, it's a bath uh, sphere? Bath, bath sphere? Bath sphere, okay. It's, it's, and uh, this is, you know, if you go with the ordinary uh, um, uh, submarine to the bottom of deep ocean, it's gonna crack like an aluminum can, the pressure. So this one, this thing has like a several inches of iron, special metal to protect, withstand the external pressure. So when people go down with that, the bath spear, guess what they find? They find the fish on the bottom of the ocean, deep ocean. Do you wonder how in the world that fish without this kind of thick armor can survive on such a pressure? This fish, they compensate the outside pressure through the equal and opposite pressure from inside. So these are tiny little fishes on the bottom of the ocean. Even though their skin is not, you know, they, are not, they don't have a, this thick arm or whatever, but their inside pressure, balance that outside pressure, they can withstand. This is how God is, you know, God wants to strengthen us. You know, these days, people talk about the uh, college admission scandal, right? All these rich people paying the bribe, cheating, and sending the, you know, uh, kids to whatever school. And then, I know, you don't like it, right? Do you? Do you, you know, we all say, ah, you know, I, 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 it came to my mind. Well, how much do you pay? 500,000, 250,000, some even pay more. You know, at least, you know, 100,000. Why couldn't they spend that much money earlier in their education, like a tutoring? Well, I mean, they don't anything until they are like a junior in high, junior in high school, and all of a sudden now they're bribing, find the back door to you know put them into whatever school. Ah, despicable parents, you know, losers, you know, ah, these filthy rich losers. Ah, man. But it dawned on me that oftentimes I feel that our prayers is like that. We're asking God to do those kind of dirty jobs for us. Give me easy way out. That's the school I want to go. Put me in, whatever it takes. You are almighty God. You said you love me. Show me you love me by putting in the job or that school or that girl or that guy. We kind of ask God, easy way out, don't we? I feel sometimes my prayer was that and that's when Holy Spirit kicked my butt and, uh, you know, God is more interested in your character. Let me tell you, Bible is very clear. God doesn't just give us a blessing. You know what God wants to actually ultimately bless, the way that God blesses us? God wants to make you and me a blessing. Look at the Genesis chapter 12. God's promise to the father of our faith, Abraham. God said, 
Verse 2, after you know you obey both from your country and your family and follow the, I mean, follow, follow the land I will show you, God said, verse 2, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you, right? Okay. And then verse 2, it said, I will make your name great. And what did he say? You will be blessed. You will be blessing. God didn't say, you will have a lot of blessing. That's not what God said. You will be blessing that I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. All people on earth will be blessed through you. God wants to make Abraham blessing. So whoever rejected Abraham, they are, blessed, they are rejecting God's blessing. Once God made Abraham a blessing, whoever received Abraham, they are receiving God's blessing. That's what's the God's, you know, God's purpose in our life. Once we start following God, guess what was happened? God's going to refine our faith. God ultimately going to empower our inner beings, and God will make us a blessing. More than giving few blessings to enjoy, God goal is making you and me a blessing that whoever comes we come in contact they will be blessed too so you know what I'm not the luckiest guy I'm a guy who will give a luck to other people so people whoever you know meet me they are blessed people you don't know how lucky you are <laughs> Jamie doesn't know how lucky she is and uh, you know seriously that's what God is doing Instead of just giving ourselves whatever you know, number of blessings, God is making you and me a blessing. By the way, it doesn't, it doesn't happen instantly. How long did it take for Abraham? Long time. Long time. 75 to you know, whatever. You look at it. All the great biblical characters. Joseph, when he was 17, he received you know, vision about being a ruler of everything. His parents even bowed to him. Took him 13 years of uh, this very, very difficult life of a slave. But that's how he became a ruler. That's how he became a servant ruler and a, and a blessing. Paul knew what prayer is, what the purpose of prayer is not to problem solving. Of course, sometimes we do. I mean, I'm not saying it, definitely there is too. But more than anything, prayer strengthens our inner being and make us into God's blessing. And wherever we go, people see God. Now, third and final point. What does it, how does a God strengthen our inner being? Where does that power come from? Verse 17, Paul said this. So that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. The way that God strengthened my, our inner being is God doesn't give us rules or regulations for us to follow. You know what God offers? He offers his son to dwell in our heart. That's how God strengthened our heart. And uh, I hope you underline the word dwell. Christ dwelling our heart in our life. If our heart is a house, that means that Christ is living in our heart 24-7 with us. Can you say Christ is dwelling in your heart every single moment of your life? Or are we treating him like a house guest? 
or like a weekend guest, or Sunday, or Friday. Yes, Christ to be time for Christ to come in. Oh, it's over. Now church is over, house, whatever. Okay, Jesus, I'm busy. <laughs> you know, we kind of give some house guests that are, don't, don't you have to go somewhere? You know? <laughs> kind of slowly pushing them up. Bible said, Christ may not visit us, but dwell in our hearts. And then Paul gave a two analogy. And I pray that you being a rooted and established love, when Christ dwells in us, two things happen. We are rooted, I mean, same thing, but we are rooted and established in love. Now, this is a two metaphor. Rooted means uh, agricultural metaphor. You know, trees, it has to be rooted, right? If a tree's root system is not well uh, grounded, tree is in trouble because a nourish if tree doesn't receive a nourishment through the root, what happens? Tree will, tree will die, right? Root is the most important thing of any plant, right? And then what about established? This is an architectural you know, analogy. Established. You have founded and established. Foundation. Oh, speaking of foundation, we are living in a region notorious for the foundational problem. You know, those who are new to Texas, there are only two kinds of houses in Texas. House with a foundational problem, and the house that will have a foundational problem. <laughs> and uh, you know, I, I I live with the first house, and uh, those of you been to my house, there's a crack in the wall, and uh, you know, and uh, I'm so glad that uh, it's a common. I'm not the only one. So Jamie said, part of our house is a falling over. You know, I said, ah, forget it. So everybody's house is falling apart in Texas. <laughs> you know, we, this is a common common you know uh, misery in Texas. Now, Paul is saying, when Christ dwells in you, you will have a foundation to anchor. And the foundation is very important. Once you have a strong foundation, whatever external pressure comes, you can withstand. You can withstand. And the, what is this uh, you know, foundation or indwelling Christ? Ultimately, Paul sums up as a love. And that's why Paul said, verse 18, this is a famous Paul's, you know, saying that with all our holy people, grabs how wide and long and high and deep the love of Christ. Paul was challenging Ephesians. Can you measure God's love for you? Is there anything bigger, anything higher, anything deeper, anything longer? Then God's love for you in Christ. And like uh, John Stott, his, uh, his uh, quote on this passage, he said, love of Christ is broad enough to encompass all mankind and long enough to last for eternity, deep enough to reach the most degraded sinner, and high enough to exalt him to heaven. And Leslie Milton, another Milton, another you know, uh, commentator, he combined this passage with Romans chapter 8, 37 to 39 in this way. Whether you go forward or backward, up to the height or down to the depth, nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. Love of Christ. 
even universe is not bigger than God's love for you and me. Whatever your failure will not be greater than what Christ has suffered for you to find you. Whatever success you dream is a puny compared to glory that Christ prepared for you. Whatever, you know, the, the happiest life that you ever planned is now, you know, it's no longer than what Christ prepared for us. You know, now, let me get to the point. You know, the root cause of our problems, we don't know God's love. We think we know God's love, but we don't know God's love. We think we know God loves us, and the cornerstone is uh, designed to show you that you know just a little bit of it. There was a Jewish-American uh, uh, economist of a great uh, influence uh, named uh, Arthur Byrne. And, and he was actually a uh, member of Economic Council for several presidents. And one day he was invited at the gathering of evangelical politicians. And uh, they asked him to pray for just everybody. And then this is you know, his prayer that was uh, later reported in the uh, Christianity Today. His prayer like this, Lord, I pray that Jewish people would come to know Jesus Christ. And I pray that Buddhists will come to know Jesus Christ. And I pray that Muslims will come to know Jesus Christ. And then last prayer was, Lord, I pray that Christians come to know Jesus Christ. <laughs> and for that, all evangelical pastors gave him a applause. I totally understand. We know Jesus Christ, but we don't know how much he loves us. You know, reason we struggle. Reason some of us actually struggle in even prayer is not because you don't have a much problem or prayer is an unanswered, but you don't know how much Jesus loves you. You are whatever, you know, suffering is not even comparison to what Jesus suffered for you. Whatever glory or, you know, the glamorous career that you're going for is a nothing compared to what Jesus has prepared for us. This is what I love about early church fathers. Their comment on this. They said, early church fathers said this. They connected these dimensions of God's love to the cross of Christ. For it's an upright Paul reached down to the earth and pointed up to heaven. While it's a crossbar carried the arms of Jesus stretched out as if to invite and welcome the whole world. Cross of Christ, it shows the depth of God's love for us. It connects to us, to heaven, the heights of God's love. And this width shows a God's you know, embrace for all sinners. No suffering cannot be big enough not to be embraced by cross of Jesus Christ. When he stretched his arms and when he is, you know, he was embracing all of us. All of us. And then my last point here is this. Paul said he didn't just, uh, uh, Paul didn't say just uh, magic, grasp the uh, 
how the, the, the dimension of Christ's love for us. Verse 18, he said, together with all the Lord's holy people, grabs the how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. You know what that means? Individually, we are limited to understand uh, this uh, gigantic size of God's love. But when it comes to house church and hears other people's experience of God's love, that's how we know how, how wide and high and long and deep God's love is. So your honest sharing in the house church, you know, it really stretches other people's understanding of God's love. And for that, we all need each other. For that, you don't have to be a perfect Christian. Actually, honest Christian, that's all we require. We're going to sing a song. For uh, this dedication song will be Great Are You, Lord, by Sons and Daughters. And uh, before we sing this song as a prayers, I want us to read this uh, song. Can you put this? Okay. Let's read together. One, two, three. You give light, you are love. You bring light to the darkness. You give a hope. You restore every heart that is broken. And great are you, Lord. It's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise. We pour our praise. It's your breath in our lungs. We pour our praise to you only. This time, I want you to take a deep breath. I, I want you to feel the breath. So take a deep breath. Okay, just one more time. Feel the breath. Are you breathing? You know every breath comes from God? Genesis said God breathed into our nostril. That's how we become a living soul. You know, Greek and Hebrew and Greek words for spirit is the same as a breath. The ruach or pneuma is a word for the breath. Spirit, wind. And God gave us his, his breath, or I might say, his spirit, so that we can breathe out <coughs> praises. God breathed in us, to us, and now we breathe out his praises and our struggles. So let's breathe freely and gratefully and joyfully in confessing, in thanksgiving, and praising God. And then remember Christ from first breath on the cross and the last breath on the cross is all about loving us and making our, you know, making a, giving us a complete free access to the Father. That's what Christ breathed, breathed the whole time on the cross. So let's breathe prayers every day with the honor, with the focus in our characters, and ultimately Asking God that, Lord, show me your love, anchor me to your love, and reveal me the deeper and greater and higher love that you, you have for me in Christ. Let's pray.